The year was 1975. I was 12 years old. And there, right at the dead center of what is undoubtedly the greatest decade of rock and roll popular music, there was a wave of incredible albums. Dylan comes out with Blood on the Tracks. Still Crazy After All These Years comes out by Paul Simon. Bad Company comes out with Straight Shooter. Led Zeppelin has Physical Graffiti. The Who has Who by Numbers. Pink Floyd's Wish You Were Here. Elton John's Captain Fantastic and the Brown Dirt Cowboy. Linda Ronstadt comes out with Prisoner in Disguise. Aerosmith has Toys in the Attic. David Bowie has Young Americans. Um, Alice Cooper comes out with Welcome to My Nightmare. Fleetwood Mac is joined by Lindsey Buckingham and Stevie Nicks. And even though they've been together since 1967, they release an album called Fleetwood Mac. The Eagles come out with One of These Nights. Springsteen releases Born to Run. All iconic albums. But in the midst of all that, there were five other albums that were released that I think were not only highly influential and high watermarks for the artists that released them, but really matter today in the way that they changed music at the time and the way that we embrace it and listen to it. So this is the story of what I think are maybe the five most influential albums of 1975. I'm the Eclectic Monk. Stick around. This one's going to be fun. Now, I'd be lying if I said that uh, I always loved the Bee Gees. In fact, in the late 70s, after the whole disco thing happened, I held the brothers Gibb in as much disdain as the rest of the rock and roll crowd that I hung out with. But as I've gotten older and I've gone back and I've listened to their music, I realize those guys really were fantastic. Their harmonies are incredible. Their writing was tight. They had a great band. And uh, just really, really great musicians. Now, they had been known mostly for their ballads since the late 60s, where they were Australia's answer to the Beatles. But in 1975, they found themselves in Miami, and they began working on an album called Main Course. Main Course was kind of the beginning of their uh, R&B funk rhythm style that was going to eventually lead them to become the kings of disco. But Main Course is not really a disco album. When you listen to it, you can hear things like Jive Talking and Nights on Broadway have that bit of a disco feel. But there's also some really great ballads and some really great deep tracks on this album. It's also the first time that Barry Gebb used his falsetta voice uh, in any kind of extended way. He discovered that he had it. <laughs> And, of course, that was going to go on to become their signature in the years after. But Main Course is where that sound, where the classic Bee Gees disco sound begins. It'd be hard to underrate how important this album was uh, because it established the Bee Gees as 
superstars, even though they were already big. But this album pushed them over the top. And it probably is the album that opened the door for them to go in and do the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, which, of course, would become one of the biggest selling albums of all time. And so when you listen to Main Course, the door is beginning to crack where rock and pop music are fixing to diverge. That's why I picked it as a really influential album, because it's the new stream. It's a, it's a new thing that happened in 75 that was going to run its own course. And some people love disco music. Some of us hated disco music. But, you know, at this point, when you look back on it, uh, some of it was really great. But, you know, a lot of it sucked. But this album is a good album. And I encourage you, if you don't have it, Main Course by the Bee Gees is an album that you need to have. Now, these five albums that I've picked, and, and really, I, I can't put them in any kind of order, you know, most important, least important. They're all important. They all have their, their things. Uh, and one of the things I love about 1975 is just how widely divergent the music styles are. The next album I want to talk about is one... Uh, it was a really a Canadian group. They were in Vancouver, although they were from uh, Washington State, but they were working in Vancouver, began recording on Mushroom Records, um, and it's a little band called Heart. And in 1975, Heart's initial release, their very first album, Dreamboat Annie, comes out. And this is a really, really important record. Now, it had three of Hart's biggest hits on it. Magic Man, of course, was the song that put them into a superstar category. Crazy on You, you still hear on the radio all the time. And the the, uh, title track, Dreamboat Annie, also got substantial airplay and is a great song. The whole album is really nice. And I think what made this album so important and all of the rest of the records that came out is because it... It not only established a new female vocal style, but it established that girls could rock and roll too, and opened the door for for so many others. Uh, I mean, you know, the Pat Benatars and the the Blondies of the world were going to follow. But in 1975, uh, women owned the folk scene. Linda Ronstadt, Joni Mitchell, Carly Simon, Carol King—you know—they were big. But they weren't really rock and roll. But the Wilson sisters, Ann and Nancy, uh, stepped forward with this album and show that girls can record, produce, and perform rock and roll music. Uh, And again, just an incredibly influential album. Of course, uh, they didn't stay with Mushroom long. Mushroom, they had terrible management. They had all kind of problems. They finally got away from them and went on uh, to put out a whole lot of great albums uh, through the 70s and early 80s. Um, but Dreamboat Annie is an album that is worth listening to. It's certainly worth owning. It's one that I pull out pretty frequently. And it's, again, another divergent because it's it's kind of... It's different. It's just different. There's nothing about this album that is uh, mainstream, and yet it's just good, solid rock and roll music 
but you've got a, a girl on guitar and a girl at the mic, and they are really great. And their harmonies, of course, as sisters, just like the Bee Gees as brothers, their harmonies as sisters are special. And so Dreamboat Annie by heart is an album you, you need to have. The next one that I'm throwing out is uh, by Neil Young, and it's an album called Tonight's the Night. Now, Tonight's the Night was actually recorded in 1973, but it wasn't released until 75. Uh, when Neil recorded this album and he took it to the, the record producers, they said no, <laughs> because this is this is a hard album to listen to. Uh, in 1973, as the songs were being written for this album, uh, his good friend Danny Witten, who was the guitarist for Crazy Horse, and one of his roadies, Bruce Berry, had both overdosed on heroin. And this album, this series of recordings, is a group of people in deep grief. This is a raw, ragged, edgy album. It's the kind of album that uh, you listen to and and you can hear the pain, not only in the lyrics and in the, the instrumentation and the vocals, you can just hear it in the heart and soul of everything that's being produced. This was uh, considered by uh, Neil Young fans to be the third and last album in the Ditch Trilogy, uh, famously after um, Harvest came out, which had Old Man and Heart of Gold on it. Uh, Neil then re uh, re released these three albums, Time Fades Away, On the Beach, and Tonight's the Night. And uh, I want to ask about why he went from this very kind of polished folk rock, very successful gold album, uh, and then released these three very stark, dark, and broody records. Uh, he said, well, I found myself in the middle of the road, and I decided to head for the ditch. And so these three albums came out. Uh, oddly enough, in 75, later on, uh, Zuma came out, which kind of broke that cycle. More of an upbeat album and a great album. But for me, Tonight's the Night is just Neil Young's finest moment. Not because it's his most eloquent, but because it's his most honest. This is, to me, the most honest recording that you will ever listen to. If you want to know the hearts of men, listen to Tonight's Tonight. It's really the only album. I've got it in three different versions. I have the actual studio release. I have the live recording at the Roxy. And I have the bootleg acetate, which I found at a music store in Soho in London and had to have. Uh, and it's uh, kind of cool to have that. So um, I've got Tonight's Tonight three times in my music collection. You don't have to go that far, but I'm telling you, this is a record that I believe it changed what music can be because of its honesty, because of its depth, because it's not polished. It didn't come out and, and have all of the slick uh, overdubs and, and production work. This is a really, really stark raw album that was not particularly well received when it came out but is today considered one of the greatest albums ever released tonight's the night by neil young is an album it's incredibly influential and released in 1975 so main course by the bgs dreamboat annie by heart 
Tonight's the Night by Neil Young. That leaves us with two more very, very influential albums. If you know your music history, you probably already guessed what they are. Um, but maybe I'll surprise you. Stick around. Don't go anywhere. All right, uh, I'm going to have to flip a coin to figure out which one of these last two goes first. Oh, hold on. Heads. Heads it is. So Heads. 1975. Willie Nelson had signed a new contract with Columbia Records. And it gave him complete artistic control. And he went into a little unknown studio in Texas. And he laid down what is considered by most people to be the greatest country album ever released. It's an album called The Red-Headed Stranger. And I love this album. Um, Willie Nelson, you know, had been around since the 50s. He had been writing songs. He wrote, you know, uh, Hello Walls. He wrote Crazy. He wrote, you know, so many big hits uh, that people like Patsy Cline had recorded. He had had his own uh, albums that were released, and, and he just hated the overproduction. At that period of time, in the mid-70s especially, there was the Nashville sound with horns and strings and backup vocalists and all these things. And he was really trying to escape from that. And so when Columbia gave him total control, he decided to take advantage of it. And he went in to the studio and he put together this concept album. Uh, and, you know, Willie Nelson, of course, is a great songwriter, but a lot of the songs on the album he didn't write. They were songs that had been written and released by people who, you know, like Eddie Arnold and, and several other country music stars over the years. But he pulls them together and he, he puts together these very, very stripped down versions. The band for this album is Willie Nelson on guitar, a bass player, a drummer, and a pianist, mostly playing on an old, beat-up, out-of-tune, honky-tonk piano. That was it. The story is about a preacher who walks in, finds that his wife is having an affair with another man, kills both of them, and then goes on a rampage, basically. Goes crazy, rides around Montana, uh, finds himself finally in Denver where he meets another woman, settles down, has children and grandchildren, and lives to a ripe old age. But with that hurt always there. It's it's a bare-bones recording. And, and when Willie Nelson took it into the producers at Columbia, when he walked in to the uh, executives and he laid this album down, they listened to it, they said, man, that is great. We love these demos. Can't wait to hear the finished product. And Willie Nelson said, no, 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 that is the finished product. And they said, but where's the horns? Where's the strings? Where's the backup vocals? He said, this is the album. This is the album we're going to release. And because they had the contract where they said he had total artistic control, they said, well, we think, you know, it's crazy, but it didn't cost much to produce, so we'll put it out. 
what they didn't realize is that this album was going to strike a chord not only with country music fans but with folk music fans and rock and roll fans this is just one of the greatest albums ever made and it was going to go on to not only become the greatest selling country album of 1975 but one of the biggest selling albums altogether of 1975 and it was going to spur on this incredible new wave of country music called outlaw music texas based music country music moved from nashville and down to austin texas and became something entirely new and so you know waylon jennings uh came out of that jesse coulter comes out of that uh, David Allen Coe comes out of that. Uh, even um, uh, Hank Jr. is going to come out of that. This new way of doing country music all rides on the back of Willie Nelson's Redheaded Stranger. It's an incredibly influential album. And it really, again, is another one of those high watermarks that showed that the artists actually understand what the people are looking for. And they can do something strange and different and uncomfortable, counterintuitive as far as the business men go. And they come out and they change everything. Willie Nelson's Redheaded Stranger is a beautiful record. If you don't own it, you should have this one. I encourage you to listen to it from beginning to end. It is a story from beginning to end. You have to put it into that perspective. And yes, Blue Eyes Crying in the Rain was Willie Nelson's first number one single that came off of this album in 1975. Well, that leaves me with only one more superly influential album. Superly, is that a word? Anyway, super influential albums. Say that five times fast. 1975. If you're paying attention, you know that in 1975, Queen released A Night at the Opera. Now, this album is really unlike any other album that was ever released. The only thing that comes even close to it, I think, and and some would say it comes close to, would be Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Land from 67 that the Beatles put out that changed everything uh, for music. But Queen goes into the studio uh, in 75. They had their first big international hit uh, with Killer Queen in 74 off their third album. They finally got out of a terrible management deal. They go into the studio determined to record the greatest record possible. And they come back with what is, I believe, one of the greatest albums ever recorded in any genre at any time. Um, This album has everything on it. It's got just absolutely fiery rock and roll. Uh, You know, I'm in love with my car. Great song. Death on Two Legs, the opener. Incredible song. Uh, It's got the pop hit, you know, John Deacon's little song, Best, You're My Best Friend, which, you know, I think is maybe the weakest track on the album, and yet was a huge international hit. And then you flip the album over, of course, and you've got everything. I mean, it's got, it's got vaudeville on here. It's got uh, science fiction folk music. Brian May's 39, all about time travel. Um, 
it's got, you flip it over and you have the Prophet song, which I think is to this day one of the most underrated tracks on the album. People don't talk about it. But their use of of uh, the echo and the bounce back on that album, and you listen to it as it pans left to right. If you put headphones on and listen to that song, it is mind-blowing, the production of that song. As Freddie Mercury tells a tale of the impending end of the world. Um flows into Love of My Life, which is, of course, this incredibly beautiful ballad that Freddie Mercury wrote for his longtime friend, um, who he was pretty much leaving in a way for men, but not because actually when he died, he left her the bulk of his estate. She was the love of his life, even though she got married and had kids with somebody else. So it is a great story, right? Uh, and then, of course, there's this this eight and a half minute thing called Bohemian Rhapsody that drops in at the end of this album that has, you know, soft, melodic music, hard rock music, and this really weird operatic thing that happens in the middle of it, which apparently they had laid so many tracks down on that particular piece that they could see through the magnetic tape. And they realized they needed to master this quick because it was rapidly fading to nothing because they had put so many layers on it. The album was released. Um, people really didn't know what to do with it. But uh, Bohemian Rhapsody got picked up by radio and began getting pushed in London and then picked up in the States. And even though, you know, songs that long are not supposed to be big hits, certainly not played on the radio, Bohemian Rhapsody became one of probably the top two or three songs in rock and roll history. Uh, some people would say Stairway to Heaven was number one and Bohemian Rhapsody number two. Others would flip that around. Hard to argue with either argument. But as an influential album, what Night of the Opera did, it opened the door for other artists to actually express their musical diversity and creativity and something that could only happen in the 70s. That's one of my big problems with modern music today. There's very little experimentation. There's very little diversity. Basically, these artists are putting out song after song after song that just sound the same. But you put on a night of the opera and listen to it from beginning to end, and there's nothing redundant about this record. This is just an incredible monument to musical production. And of course, you know, Queen were just so fantastic. Freddie Mercury's vocals, Roger Taylor's vocals, Brian May's guitar playing, John Deacon and his writing and his just really incredible bass lines make this an album that stands far above most albums. And yet in 1975, look at the competition. Look at what came out in that year. I'm glad I was alive, and I'm glad that music still exists. And I hope that this has encouraged you to go pull up that list of 
albums released in 1975 because there's a lot of great ones I didn't mention. And go and explore what that year meant. Not only to rock and roll, but to popular music as a whole. Well, I hope you find this interesting. I haven't done one of these in a while, so I try to get back to my roots a little bit. And, uh, hey, till we meet again, thanks for listening. Travel well. Enjoy the journey. Listen to the music. God bless. See you next time. So I really do appreciate you listening to the podcast. And I appreciate if you would rate this and share this your social media, whatever you could do to help publish it and publicize it and get it out there. That'd be great. Um, The stickers are available. And so if you will go to theeclecticmonk.com, go into the contact page, give me an email address and a mailing address, I will send you Eclectic Monk window stickers. I'll send you a handful of them because I got... A bunch of them to give away. And if you're one of the first nine people, and I can tell you, there's only eight available spots. Uh, if you're one of the next eight people to request a sticker, I will not only send you those stickers, I will send you something uh, that's created just for you. So, again, I appreciate all nine of you. Uh, everyone who's listening, I, I thank you. And until we meet again, Travel well, enjoy the journey, and God bless. See you soon.